And I'm trying to, as a pastor here, discern the hottest questions that need to be answered that are from your hearts to my heart. And I received permission this week to read one of the questions that was emailed in to me. And I just thought it was such a heartfelt question that I thought that I would read it to you. And I uh, got permission to do that, and I'm leaving the name anonymous, but hopefully it will touch um, your life as a question that is also on your heart. The question reads, uh, why do we keep doing the same sin? Is it really that we haven't repented of it, or is it some kind of process that we go through? You can have freedom for a time and think, Oh yeah, that one is gone, and the next thing you know, you go into those old thought patterns. Is it something I'm doing wrong? This person says, my struggle is fear, worry, envy, jealousy, just to list a few. Are we expected to struggle? Sin feels ugly. What do we do as believers with the sin that remains in us? And then she says, if you're more godly, do you struggle less, or is everybody in the same boat? Well, I think we're all in the same boat. That's why I'm bringing this message this morning. She then references 2 Corinthians 5, 17, as we are new creatures in Christ. Old things have passed away, and everything's become new. How does that square with this besetting sin that's in my life? The word besetting means literally harassing the harassing sin that won't go away. How do we deal with that? That's what we're talking about this morning. Dealing with sin that hangs on. Why is it still there? And how do I fight against it? Really what we're talking about is a clear doctrine in Scripture. I want us to put our thinking caps on a little bit this morning. Because we're talking about the doctrine of sanctification. Let's just all say this big, you know, $3 word together. Here we go. Sanctification. Right. Now we're all Bible scholars. Here we go. Sanctification. How do we define it? I put it on the screen for you. Wayne Grudem's definition. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Progressive sanctification, that's how some people put it. It's where we are saved at a point in time, sin is dealt with, and yet there is remaining residue in our lives, sins, sins that are even particularly part of our individual experiences that maybe we sin more in an area than someone else does. But nevertheless, we're all sort of struggling to deal with areas in our lives that we keep stumbling over that plague us, that upset us, that cause our consciences to buzz, that cause us at times to lose sleep because I did it again. It's the sinful hangover that's still dogging us that won't go away until we're ultimately in glory. And so we got to deal with our sin that hangs on. And certain sins are besetting sins that just are particularly nasty in our lives. I want to talk about this. I want us to declare war against those particular sins and to do it biblically. Romans 12, we read this earlier, Romans 12, 1 and 2. It is a great verse or a couple of verses to look at as we launch into how do you deal with your sin. All of Romans is the gospel in detail. Romans 1 through 11 to the end of that chapter leads up to Romans 12, which is the application. Paul's bringing a punch here to say, I appeal to you, therefore, because of all the gospel we've just learned about, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. All right, stop there. Did you hear that word sacrifice? That's, that's plunge the knife language, okay? That's temple language. He's saying, look, Jesus went on the altar for you and died, spilt his blood on your behalf to free you from the dominion and power of sin and to deal with it as a sin payment once and for all. Now here's your job. Your job today is for you to go up on the altar and plunge a knife into the sin that you're dealing with. 
Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's worship that God receives daily. It's to die daily. It's to deny yourself something. I'm going to starve something, deny myself, and take up my cross and follow Jesus daily. It's a daily effort. It's a discipline. 1 Timothy 4, 6. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. I was reading to my son, Logan, a book on spiritual discipline. It's Disciplines of a Godly Young Man, written by Kent Hughes. And he basically makes the clear point that, look, you can't have godliness and sensuality, sexual sin. You can't have it both ways. You can't think both ways. you got to deny one to get the other. It's that simple. The Christian life is uh, pictured as a race that we run, a marathon race that we're all running. 1 Corinthians 9 is where Paul pictures it this way. Turn to me there, with me there, 9. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. Then he goes to a boxing metaphor. I do not box as one beating the air. I'm not shadow boxing. He says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. It's a seriousness to sanctification. There's, there's a commitment to sanctification like, a, like an athlete. We're going to be looking at the Olympics coming up, right? All the London fanfare and the Olympics. And I've been seeing these previews on certain athletes that we're supposed to bond with before the Olympics. So we watch them. And I enjoy that. I enjoy competition because there's something inspiring about people who've given their lives since they were knee high to a grasshopper in the gym, right? Killing it for this moment. To, to go for the gold and win and it's sort of all of their life has been given in discipline to achieve something that's what the spirit of God inspired for us to think like as Christians we are supposed to discipline ourselves that way we don't look at the phrase we don't run aimlessly it reminds me of one of the Olympians that's going to be running um, this year again in the Olympics is Allison Felix. Have you heard of her? She's sort of advertised under Nike and Gatorade. Well, she's the daughter of one of my seminary professors from Master Seminary. And as the story goes, she never ran a race in her life. And, you know, she sort of was dogged as having these kind of spindly, skinny legs that she's always referencing. And, and she was running in PE class, I think, late junior high, early high school, and she's running the 50-yard dash or something, and the PE coach says, okay, everybody run, you know, and he's timing it, and Allison Felix just, you know, takes off, goes, and she's running like, she's not been trained, she's just running like this, he goes, can you do that again, and so then she runs again, and ever since that time, that moment, she went into training, and got refined, and became more disciplined, and more laser-like focused so that she could win more gold medals on our behalf. She won a couple last time and she's going to win some more because she's running according to discipline. And that's the race that we're called to run. Philippians 2, we're going to look at it later on. We're called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. It's talking about spiritual growth there. Work. We're called to be active to grow in grace, to grow in knowledge. How does this happen? Well, a few sort of defining themes when you talk about sanctification. First of all, it unfolds over the course of our lifetime. Philippians 1.6, God begins the work that he will complete ultimately in heaven. But we in this effort participate with God in it. Do you catch that? At salvation, God does it all. But in spiritual growing or sanctification, we are actively together participating. We're teaming up in a fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're teaming up with God. Do you got the idea? We're, we're going to battle alongside God in this effort to eradicate sin in our lives. 
We're taking the crosshairs and saying, look, I'm going to target that issue. I'm going to deal with that issue aggressively. So it will go away. Or at least it will increasingly digress in my life. It's different from justification. It's different from when you're saved. God declares you righteous. It's a sealed deal for all of eternity. It's different in the sense that we participate in this. We don't participate in getting ourselves saved, but we have to participate in the discipline of godliness. The primary means for this is through the Word of God. You're hearing the Word of God now. This is a means of grace to you. This is one part of your spiritual training and development is to hear truth, to read truth, to meditate on truth, to pray truth, to think biblically. That's part of spiritual growth. And then we pray, we attend church, we bond with people. There are the means of grace from church where we fellowship together and that causes us to be set in a place to grow we're not earning our spiritual growth we're just putting ourselves in a place for growth we're putting ourselves under the means of grace a place of blessing it was put to me one way by a guy named Don Whitney I think we've got his book out there in the bookstore spiritual disciplines of the Christian life it's one of my favorite books I've ever read Don Whitney and he says look if you want to go get hit by a Mack truck you can't just sit in your living room you got to go out to the freeway and stand in the road well if you're serious about being a godly Christian Growing in grace, you got to put yourself in a place to be blessed. As the old southern preacher said, you got to put yourself under the spout where the glory comes out. You got to. You can't be passive in this process. This is real stuff. This is serious business, and it takes a broken spirit. You got to be contrite. You can't be relying on your own campfire promises to get you there. You got to say, Lord, I can't do it in my own strength. And I'm relinquishing my own efforts and saying, Lord, bless me through your means of grace. I'm trusting in the gospel. I'm trusting in the fact that I'm fighting against a defeated foe. Satan was defeated at Golgotha, though he is still loosed to terrorize us and tempt us. We realize that ultimately he's defeated by the cross. We realize that our sin is paid for even though the residue and principle of remaining sin dwells in us. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is where Paul says, The things I don't want to do, I'm doing. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he mentions specifically in Romans 7 that there is a war that's waged in his members or his body parts. You struggle to fight it and defeat it. We need spiritual discipline. Jesus prayed for us in the garden as the high priestly prayer of John 17 says, John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And as we are sanctified, we will show spiritual fruit. Matthew chapter 7 talks about tree, a tree that will have good fruit. Galatians 5, 22 talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is sanctification. One of my favorite authors and takes on this is J.C. Ryle. He wrote the ultimate book on sanctification. There hasn't been a better book written on it that I know of. And it's called Holiness. I've studied it pretty thoroughly and pretty deeply and studied one of the chapters for this morning. Holiness. And he talks about how holiness... The motive for holiness and the motive for sanctification is doxology, holiness, and happiness. He actually he says that holiness and happiness are synonymous. A cleansed, purified, unburdened conscience is the happiest person on earth. Would you agree with that? That's what Jesus said. He said, look, don't follow the Pharisees. They're trying to bind you up with all kinds of legalistic things, saying, hey, do this and do this, do that, and then you'll be right with God, and you need to live under this fear and guilt. And Jesus said, no, no, put my yoke upon your back. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what he meant by that is that when your conscience is delivered and you feel at peace with God, that's joy. So part of the reason why we're disciplined and part of the reason why we run, just like an athlete that runs for pleasure, 
We're running the race of holiness for our own pleasure. And that's the way God designed it to be. We are new creatures in Christ. We're delivered from the appetites of this world. We fight against them. And now we have a new appetite, a new song in our hearts where we can have pleasure in God as we run the race of endurance. J.C. Riley talks about holiness as preparation for heaven. This is like heaven's training ground. So when we taste God, we're tasting a foretaste of heaven. And he makes a lot about the fact that there's a lot of people that think they're going to heaven but have no appetite for heaven now. And why would they think that they're going to heaven if they don't have an appetite for heaven now? I didn't say the book wasn't convicting. I just said it was good. He says, look, you know, it's like an eagle that's locked up in an iron cage. It just doesn't fit. An unsanctified, an unspiritual person in heaven, it, they're out of their element. It's like a fish out of water. It doesn't work. It's not that we earn our way to heaven. Jesus did that for us on the cross. It's just that our appetites for God and for holiness are what cause us to feel the affirmation and the peace that we're going there. You know, the Bible says that we will be saints on earth. We are called saints on earth before we die. And then we are called saints in heaven. But if you have no sense of being a saint, no sense of, of, of being holy here on earth, we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that we are preparing ourselves for heaven. And so it leads us to the question, how do we kill sin? How are you going to do it? How do you kill sin? This is a frustrating fight. It's an inward conflict. And let me just encourage you that the fact that you're frustrated with your sin is a good thing. If you were just sort of dialed out and not caring about your sin, if you had no inward conflict, no raging war in your heart, no conflict of conscience, then there's a problem. But it's the fight and it's the need to fight that affirms us that we are a part of this fight. We're a part of this battle that we need to be waging war in. It's a lifelong fight. We're called to fight. Let me ask you this. Are you fighting? Are you willing to fight? Philippians chapter 2. Turn over there quickly. Verse 12. Philippians, we're going to look at this in detail in the fall, but the buildup here is that Christ died for our sins and has conquered our sins and is highly exalted. And because of the gospel, verse 12, Paul Hits it again. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see the teaming up effect? You're not called to fight this fight alone. Paul says in 1 Timothy, we're to fight the good fight of faith. We're to literally agonize the good agony. <laughs> but we're not called to do it alone. When, when Paul, at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, said, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith, he knew that he had done that with God's power. So I'm not calling you to a war where you are not filled with the Holy Spirit's equipment. He's given it to us, and I'm calling us to declare war on our flesh. So first of all, enter into the battle. Get your game on. And then secondly, I want to just say this, and this is sort of the practical way to fight sin. Starve your sin. Don't feed your sin. Let me put it another way. There's no neutral in the Christian life. You're not just sitting idle, having, you know, sort of, the couch potato experience where you say, well, at least I'm not doing this or that, and so I'm okay. There's none of that in the Bible's view of sanctification. You're either moving forward or you're digressing, moving backwards. It's kind of like in terms of physical health. If you're eating Happy Meals or McDonald's French fries as your daily habit, you know, that's not moving you forward in physical health, right? I mean, not that I don't eat McDonald's sometimes, but... I'm just saying, look, there's, there's no neutral. You're not neutral in eating junk food and okay physically. If all you eat is junk food, you're moving backwards in physical health. Your arteries are thanking me right now, whether you know that or not. But in the spiritual life, it's so true and even more so. If you're just sort of 
showing up but not engaged, you're going backwards and you're missing out on holiness, missing out on giving glory to God, and you're missing out on personal happiness, and you're missing out on spiritual influence. So starve your sin. Don't feed your sin. Let me just take a few moments to point out a few things that could be your besetting sins. Gossip. Do you like to talk about people behind their backs in a harmful way? That could be your besetting sin. You might pang with guilt over talking about people and go, man, I did it again. Are you looking at internet pornography? Are you lingering there, staring into the world and saying, world, satisfy me? It's like where you, you come off of work, you're exhausted, you're tired, you flip on the TV and you say, okay, world, feed my flesh. Is that what you're doing? That's going backwards. Are you hating people? Are you, are you filling your heart with callous and hatred toward people instead of loving them? Are you cheating? Are you, are you being... You know, sort of an embezzler of money. Are you, are you taking what's not yours in the workplace or at home? Are you stealing? Are you committing adultery? Going behind your spouse's back and committing adultery? Or are you fornicating? Paul said, what fellowship has light with darkness? The two don't go together. You can't be going for it for God and being godly and enjoying holiness and feeding your flesh at the same time. But Christians do that. Christians do it. Believers nurture sin and lose out in this life. The Christian life is not about having your best life now. It's about being holy for the glory of God and being satisfied in the holiness of Christ. It's a foretaste of heaven. And I want to just, you know, sort of call you to fight your flesh. The Bible says to kill your flesh, to mortify your sin, to throw it off of you and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not some sort of side lesson in the Bible. This is the Christian fight. You're called to do this. This is not an option. I'm calling you as a messenger of the gospel to go to war against your flesh. For the glory of God and for the joy of your own heart and life. Now this morning I want us to take a few moments and learn from someone's bad example. There's sort of two ways to learn. You can learn from somebody who does it right and you can learn from somebody who does it wrong. We're going to look at a believer who did it wrong and lost out on a lot in life. No pun intended, we're talking about lot. From Genesis chapters 13 through 19. I would invite you to turn back to the first book in the canon of Scripture, Genesis chapter 19. Jesus said in Luke 17, Remember Lot's wife. Remember that? Sort of a, a lesson of, hey, don't be someone who thinks you're a believer and then looks back at the world and disobeys God and reveals that you have a hard heart and you're really not a believer. She was one who looked back at Sodom longingly, left her heart in Sodom, and she turned into a pillar of salt. Jesus says, look, remember Lot's wife. Remember that situation and be warned by that. And in the same way, you and I from Scripture are to be warned from her believing spouse, Lot. Because Lot lost out on a lot in life. Because Lot's heart even as a believer, was still engaged in Sodom. Look at Genesis chapter 19 at verse 16. It says, but Lot lingered. If you remember Lot's wife, then we need to also remember that Lot, as a believer, lingered. Lot lingered. Now, Lot lived in Sodom, and Sodom was a sin-filled community. And he was a man who drank it in with his family and lived in the midst of it. Nothing wrong with living in the midst of a sinful world, but there's everything wrong about living and feeding your flesh by the world as you live in it. And that's what Lot did. 
Was Lot a believer? I think it would be easy for us to say, you know what, Lot, he, you know, he was warned about Sodom and the angels. We're going to look at the story about how angels came to him, actually had to rip him out of Sodom before God rained fire and brimstone on top of it because it was a sin-cursed, sin-filled environment that he was involved in. Was he really that good of a guy? Well, you know what, even though his heart wasn't focused on the Lord... Second Peter says, Lot indeed was a believer. Look at Second Peter chapter 2, verse 8. Just flip over to the back of your Bible real quickly. What, is the, what does Peter say about Lot? He's talking about false teachers, and he contrasts the false teachers in the church with Lot to show a picture of grace. Verse 7, 2 Peter 2, 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the world... Conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly. From my inspired text, as is yours, we find that Lot was called righteous. Righteous Lot. In what sense was he righteous? Well, he was righteous, like we talked about last week, in the sense that God saved him. God made him righteous. God declared him righteous. God did that for him. So Lot was as much a believer as you and I are believers. We're made righteous by the gospel. And Lot experienced grace and was saved. And though he was saved, he was drinking in the world. And he paid dearly for it in this life. Now look, before we judge Lot, I think it's important for us to realize that much of the church today is a lot like Lot. Right? We're people who believe in heaven. We believe in hell. We believe in Jesus as the only way to be in heaven. We love the Lord. We, we try, but really we've got it in neutral, which has really taken us backwards down the hill, digressing into our own flesh. Are we willing to fight? Because Lot is an example of someone who was not fighting the good fight of faith. Let's learn about Lot. What did Lot not do? What did he not do? He was a person who probably believed he was out of reach for grace. He was someone who had lost his first love. He was someone that... Perhaps like you and I want to make the narrow gate more wide. He probably had made excuses about why he was drinking in Sodom's pleasures. When we allow sin to live in our heart like an undisturbed tenant, we're just feeding our flesh. And I think that's what Lot was doing. Let's look at the steps of passivity that he took. How did he digress? Turn back to Genesis chapter 13. Just to learn about this man. Remember, Lot was Abraham's nephew. Abraham, who was called Abram when he was called to go to the promised land, took Sarah with him and his nephew Lot. And they were herdsmen. And as they went towards the promised land, the herdsmen began to fight with each other because they wanted their herds to get the best land, the most fertile areas. And so Abram, as a wise leader, took his nephew Lot aside and said, hey, let's go up on the cliff and talk about this. Look, if you want to take this side of the land, then I'll go this way. If you want to go east, I'll go west. If you want to go west, I'll go east. But let's go in two different directions so our herds can feed in peace and the herdsmen will stop fighting each other. And by no means do we want to start fighting over the best part of the land. And so, what does Lot do? Verse 10 of chapter 13, it says, Lot lifted up his eyes and Let's do this. We've got to make sure I can, I can project, right? All right, here we go. Genesis chapter 13, verse 10. He saw basically this. Let me just say this. Lot, Lot chose by sight, not by faith. He chose by sight and not by faith. That's a temptation that we can fall into in our world. We can say, look, here's a good venture. Here's a good business deal. Here's a good way for me to make some gain in my life. 
And we have no thought of all about our eternal soul or how that will affect us. We take this job, we, we continue along in this relationship that's bad for us. Why? Because we have no thought of our souls and how it's affecting us whatsoever. Do you ever move somewhere and, you know, you, you think of church as an afterthought? When we move places, we should think in terms of, you know, how are our kids going to be affected by where we move? Where do I want my children? How do I want them engaged? Well, Lot was a person who chose the land, the best land, by sight and not by faith. He went to the well-watered garden of the Lord. So Lot chose for himself all of the Jordan Valley. And, and look, it's interesting in the language of verse 12, it says that they separated and that he set up camp toward Sodom. It says, Abraham settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. The language here is literally that he pitched his tents toward Sodom. He wasn't sort of trying to protect himself and saying, okay, I've moved close to this city that's got a bad reputation and I'm going to sort of keep some distance there. Instead, no, he moved his tents towards the sin and towards the bad environment. Is that something that you've done? Is there something that you're pitching your tent toward? Where you say, you know what, I don't, I don't taste of the world all the way, but every now and then I nibble on the world. And that's what Lot did. He let his heart be drawn towards the world. And in Genesis 14, 12, the next time we sort of pick up on what happened to Lot, you find that Lot has left his camp and left his tents and has literally moved into the town of Sodom. Look at this. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Why did he move into town? I mean, the reputation of this town is that they were wicked people. It was known as a danger and a liability. Why did he do that? He did it, we don't know exactly why, but it was because he was allowing his heart to go there. We don't know if his wife, who was an unbeliever, was saying, hey, let's take our two daughters. They need to get married off. We want to make sure this happens, so let's put them in an environment where our daughters can be drawn you know, into relationships, and they'll get married off better if we're in the city. Now, again, I'm not against the city, and I'm not against uh, in engaging our world. We're going to talk about that next week. How do we engage our culture and keep our hearts protected from sin? That's where I'm headed. But I just want you to see the danger of digressing, of pretending that you're in neutral when you're really letting your heart go down the slippery slope. That's what was going on here. That's what Lot was all about. He was sort of listening probably to his unbelieving wife and his unbelieving daughters and sort of saying, all right, you know, let's just go into the town. We'll be fine. Guess what? It wasn't okay. In essence, Lot's hands were tied in the fight. Ever been there? It's like Samson who had his hair cut in the battle by Delilah. It's Esau who said, I'm going to sell my pot of porridge to Jacob. I'm going to give my birthright away. It's, it's your conscience at night that plagues you over sins that you're unwilling to face and deal with face to face in clarity, with Bible verses attached to what you need to do, where you're going to deal with it. You're not going to let it fester. You're not going to let the infection grow. What do you sacrifice? What do you lose when you're unequally yoked, when you're unwilling to think about your sin and then think again? What do you lose? Let's see what Lot lost by feeding his flesh in sin instead of starving his sin. What did Lot lose by being passive? This is what he lost, just in a word. He lost spiritual influence. He lost his influence. He lost holiness, he lost happiness, what we've talked about. He lost his opportunity to give glory to God, but practically what that meant for him, which this is the pang of guilt in Lot's life and the pang of guilt in our hearts and lives when we compromise and kick it into neutral and go backwards is we lose spiritual influence. There's no sort of fire 
in our lives. And we find this back in Genesis 19. The story go, as the story goes, Sodom and Gomorrah was going to be destroyed. God had heard enough. Abram, or Abraham at this point, was praying for Sodom and saying, look, aren't there 50 righteous people, 45 righteous people, 40, 30? Do I hear 20? Is there 10? Are there 10 people who are righteous in this community? Guess what? Lot had influenced none of them. No one was righteous. And so chapter 19 brings us to the scene where the angels are going to come and warn Lot and his family to get out of there. Since the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. Now remember, Lot is a believer. So when he sees God's spiritual messengers coming, he responds. He's not doing much of anything right, but at this point he gets it and understands that these are messengers from God. And he says, look, come to my house, let me wash your feet, let me feed you so that I can honor you as God's messenger. So he brings them in. They wanted to sort of turn aside and not go, but he convinced them to come in. But then you see how wicked the town really is, because we don't know how many thousands of people lived in Sodom, but it says that the men, both young and old, saw these angels, which look like men. Remember the Bible in Hebrews says that we will entertain people who are angels, and we'll be unaware of that. You remember that verse? Well, these were just cream of the crop looking messengers or men who are walking with Lot, who were really angels, and these men looked attractive to the men in Sodom, both young and old. Look at verse 4. It says, Before they, the angels, lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So you got this sort of grotesque scene of multiplied men, young and old, who are pushing and pressing upon the house and saying, we want these men to come out. Now, I'm not going to get into the gross and graphic detail of what they wanted, but their appetites were corrupt, and they wanted to be sensual and carnal and commit homosexual relations with these two men. So they're pressing in their corrupted passions for these men to come out. They called out to Lot, verse 5, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. He's begging them. Now, again, it shows how much spiritual influence Lot had. He had none. He had none in his community. He's, he's begging these men to just back off. This is like the moment in Lot's life where he's sort of feeling a second chance and saying, okay, I know I haven't done a whole lot right, but I'm hosting these messengers of God. I'm trying to do the right thing. So men, back off. I know that you know, my life has sort of been hypocritical with you, and I've sort of engaged in, in, in sort of you know, this, this idea of, of living here and being okay with the sin, even though 2 Peter says he was vexed over what he had observed and, and he was you know, upset about that. He's sort of trying to take a stand for God, but it's innocuous. It's just not working. Verse 8. This is how confused and compromised Lot was in his thinking. Again, as a believer, he's vexed by the sin. He's hurting inside over the sin that's surrounding him in the community. And he says, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Some twisted thinking. And, you know, it's a picture of how bad it can get even for a believer. Let that sink in for a moment. How hardened can your heart become even as a believer? And that's what Holy Scripture says Lot was, a believer who's willing to throw his daughters out there to the wolves to preserve these angels inside. He's so desperate to try to do something right that he gets completely confused and turned around by doing something wrong. Well, 
how did the crowds respond? Look at verse 9. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and has become the judge. Who are they indicting here? They're indicting Lot. They're saying, look, Lot, you came to sojourn in the town of Sodom. You came to be with us, and now you're going to judge us for what we're doing? I mean, that's how bad Lot's reputation was in this town. He was held out as a hypocrite. He says, now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and drew near to break the door down. So they're really inflamed, really calling Lot a hypocrite. They're coming after him. But then the angels intervened. But the men, verse 10, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And then they struck all the men with blindness so that they were just stumbling around, groping for the door, wearing themselves out, verse 11 says. That's a picture of grace. Again, Lot had stumbled and backslidden and digressed so far in his hearts that he was doing the ultimate unloving act in offering his daughters to these corrupt and wicked men, not protecting them. And yet the angels pull Lot back in the house and shut the door. It's a picture of grace. It's a picture of hope even for us in our digressions, even in places where we have nurtured sin and not dealt with it directly. There's still grace for the believer, even when you've stopped fighting. You know, he lost influence in his community, but I also want to point something out. He lost influence where it hurts most. He lost influence in his family. That's what you give up when you compromise holiness. As a believer, your children will drink in more by what they see in your life than what they hear you ever say with your mouth. Do you hear me? Your children are watching. And people who are under you, who are children perhaps just around you as children in your class or your Sunday school class or in your community, they're watching you. If you name the name of Christ and their parents don't name the name of Christ, they better see something different sometimes from you. And if you fight for holiness, they'll see it. They'll see it in ways that we don't even know they see it. We'll go, man, do I do anything right ever? And then a child will say, listen, I see it. I see it. If there's a heartbeat that's produced and generated by the Holy Spirit of God in your home at all, your children will see it. Oftentimes, it's by going to my children and transparently confessing, hey, I've blown it here, 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 and here. Let's talk about it. I needed grace for this and what I said or my attitude and that, and please forgive me. Let's pray about it together. That's thunder and lightning in the hearts of my children, I assure you. That's how you get it done. If you ignore God and you just say, well, it doesn't matter. I'm going to blow it off. I'm going to let that go. I'm going to let that slide in my own life. And my own actions and my own attitude, I'm not going to address it. I'm going to use some form of entertainment to escape my sin that's so evident in my home. If you do that, then you'll lose your kids. You'll lose their hearts. You'll lose their respect. But if you have integrity with the gospel in your home, then it will affect your child's, your children's hearts, your child's heart. And that's what Lot did not do. His wife, as we see, was not a believer. Look at verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Look at verse 26. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. The angels threatened and warned, look, don't look back on Sodom. When you start to run away from Sodom, don't look back. And Lot's wife looked back because her heart was still there. And I'm not saying that you can be godly enough that you will ultimately ensure that your spouse will believe or be a strong believer. But that's surely part of the point that's being made here in this story with this family. 
Lot's wife, we have to remember, she looked back. Her heart was left in Sodom while Lot's was not. Just kind of backtracking the story for a minute. Verse 15, verse, verse, look at verse 13. The angels are saying, we, we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, they were kind of going to marry his daughters, they weren't yet married, it says who were to marry his daughters, he says, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law, look at this, to be jesting. You know what his sons-in-law said? They went, why are you waking us up? Are you kidding me? Are you joking? They're laughing at him. They're mocking him because he's lived such a hypocritical life in neutral up to that moment that when it was time to mean business for God, these sons-in-laws did not respect Lot whatsoever. And they said, you got to be kidding me. I'm not listening to you. I got, I got nothing for you. You're a joke, is what they said. You are a joke, so we're not going to listen. And then, as it goes on, it says, The morning, verse 15, dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest they be swept away in the punishment of the city. Now, Lot did take his daughters, but if we were to read later on in the story of Genesis 19, we'll find that his daughters became Lot's worst temptresses and they tempted him to sin egregiously with him in a cave and he did that very thing, drunkenness and immorality. It's horrible. His his daughters were not believers. He didn't carry spiritual influence. And why? Because look at verse 16. He was not fighting against his sin. Here it is. I mean, he knows that God keeps his promises. He, surely he learned that from his uncle Abraham, the father of faith. He knew that God was going to rain fire and brimstone on Sodom. And yet, verse 16, but he lingered. Literally, Lot is saying, you know, get up, let's go. Okay, well, you know, do I really want to leave this after all? And before we judge Lot too quickly, don't we do this sometimes? We go, okay, I know the right thing to do. I, I heard the preacher. I've read the word of God. But, you know, I'm still going to kind of get, you know, drunk on this world around me a little bit and enjoy it. That's what Lot is doing here. The Christian life by faith becomes so clear to us, doesn't it? Deny ourselves. Don't drink in the world's pleasures. Enjoy holiness, and there are times in our lives when we walk along and our heads are up and our hearts are cleansed and our consciences are are fresh, and we go, you know, I'm enjoying Jesus and I'm living for him, and then suddenly we allow our hearts to turn and to linger and to drift, and that's what Lot did. And when, by doing that, by doing that, he lost influence in his community he lost passion and fire in his life he lost joy in holiness but let me just finish with this even though he lost all of those things there was still grace for lot and there's still hope for you and me we're fighting a fight that will be incomplete that ultimately god will have to reach into our lives and bring us to glory just like Lot was brought out of Sodom. Look at this, verse 16. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. Aren't you glad that God is going to take us by the hand into his holy habitation? Isn't that great? We're not going to fight and claw our way into heaven. We're just responding to the grace he's given us in this life as we're fighting for holiness. But ultimately, God is going to complete the work and bring us into glory they brought him outside the city and ultimately the reason that we have hope in this life life even when we are failing even when we are in neutral is because while we were in sodom failing god sent his son to go into sodom into the world to take our place aren't you glad that jesus came fully god fully man two thousand years ago he never drank the world's liquor 
He never looked with sensuality upon this world. He didn't drink it in. Jesus never lingered and fell to temptation. He did it perfectly and fought our battle for us and killed our sins once and for all for us so that he could absorb Sodom's wrath in your place. Amen? So we could be ripped out of Sodom and enjoy glory forever and ever, protected by the holiness of God that Jesus gave to us once and for all. And because he did that for you and me, that should be our daily motivation to fight our sin for his glory. Will you run the race this week? Don't be like Lot this week. Rely upon the Holy Spirit's transforming grace to run the race of endurance, to be like Jesus Christ. He ran the race for us. He stands at the finish line to welcome us. So let's run looking into his face, fighting our flesh, fighting our sins so we can influence this world and influence our families for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this call to fight the good fight of faith. I pray, God, that this question that's been asked would resonate with all of us. Lord, we're all called to repent and keep repenting of sins, but we're not supposed to have a head-down sort of faith where we're discouraged and depressed. We're supposed to be fighting for holiness and in the fight, just like an athlete that enjoys a wrestling match, enjoys the race, enjoys the run, enjoys the swim, enjoys the weightlifting, enjoys the boxing match. We need to be that kind of fighter that kind of athlete, that kind of soldier who's warring the good warfare for the joy of it. Lord, there's so much pleasure to be had in you, and God, we love you, and we thank you for this call to not be like Lot. We're saved like Lot was saved, but we don't want to live the life he lived. There's still time to be proactive in the Christian life, and I pray that you would give us the power to do it by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I am